Great, let's read the Bible together. <laughs> um, I'm going to be reading for us today from John chapter 2. So um, from verse 13, I'll give you a moment there um, to find that. John chapter 2 from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Alrighty. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get, out, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Well, great to be here tonight. Uh, My name's James. I'm part of the ministry team here. I think the craziest building I've been in is probably Coney Island, at Luna Park, uh, full of all those really strange rides uh, and all the rest of it. Might be showing my age there, but I think that ranks as the craziest one. Can I say particular thanks uh, or welcome to senior and junior high. It is so good to have you uh, with us. Um, We would normally gather here with a whole stack of people for 6.45, but really special to have junior, senior high with us as well. Well, let's think about sacred ground. Are there particular places that for you are sacred, where you tread a little bit more carefully? They're special, they're set apart. Uh, As Meg sort of said a moment ago, for some people, landscape is sacred. Uh, For others, it is a particular building. It might be just home. Uh, It might be something of particular personal or historic significance. Well, growing up, the Sydney Cricket Ground was pretty sacred to me. I wouldn't have gone there a lot, but when I went there with my dad, uh, I would sit there and look out at the players playing on that sacred, perfect patch of green. Uh, There were guys like Dennis Lilly, Greg Chappell, Viv Richards, uh, showing my vintage there, but these guys were heroic. They were like gods playing out there on the Sydney cricket ground, and I was on this side of the fence with dad, watching, dreaming, occasionally distracted by what was all the crazy behaviour up there on the hill at the SCG, which is now sadly gone. What's sacred ground for you, for us? In the passage just read for us, Jesus and his disciples have stepped onto sacred ground. It is the temple. I I should show you, actually, there's another photo here that will show you just how special the SCG was for me before I go anywhere. You can see it on my face. You can see the smile. A few years ago, I got to actually step onto the SCG with Angus and his crew from St Ives cricket team. We got to play a game in between innings in the Sheffield Shield. 
I got to step onto what had otherwise been sacred ground, really special. Well, let's think about Jesus and his disciples. They've come to Jerusalem at the Passover and they've stepped into the temple, under those temple courts. For them, that's sacred ground. This building is essentially the beating heart of the nation. It is, uh, we know from Luke chapter 2, Jesus had been brought here as an infant, as a little baby. And his family would have come here every year for the Passover. We're told also in Luke 2 that Jesus was here as a 12-year-old and when everyone else headed home, they couldn't find Jesus amongst all of the families heading back up north, came back into the city, looked for him everywhere until they found him in the temple, in these courts, uh, in deep discussion with the teachers. When his parents said, what were you thinking? What were you doing? He replied with this. He said, why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. We can assume that he was here every year for the Passover, that defining festival of God's people. That was the one time in the year when the whole nation remembered back to when God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. It brought them to himself. They remembered when all the firstborn of the Egyptians died, but they remained alive, simply because the blood of lambs was on their door. And when God's angel of death and judgment came, he would pass over their house. They found themselves out there in the wilderness, just themselves and the living God, Yahweh. He was present. He made himself visibly or, or, or sort of present in the middle of their campsite in the tabernacle in the wilderness. There was the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple in Jerusalem, the building and courts that had been carefully mapped out by God, originally built by Solomon and then rebuilt after the exile. It was like a, a sacred island on, up there on top of Mount Zion in the middle of a really busy city, Jerusalem. Time spent there in worship, in worship of God inside those courts was intended to shape the whole life lived outside those walls. The whole thing worked. As a, it was a map of relationship. You could call it the architecture of approach. The whole building was a constant lesson in how do you, as sinful people, relate to a holy God. There was the outer big court for the Gentiles, for the non-Jewish people who yet wanted to come and worship Yahweh. The next court in was the court of women, Jewish women. The next court in was the court of the priests, where they went about all their priestly business, especially sacrifice, up the steps into the building, into the holy of holies, and then into the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God had made himself present, there behind the curtain. So the whole building was a lesson in how to relate to God, and it was his presence that made the temple sacred. The problem with most of our pictures that we see in our books and up there on the net and the models made, is that they're largely empty and they're silent. Whereas the actual temple itself hummed with activity. 
It was full of, of vibrant things happening. It was full of sound and rich odours and sights. The temple was a place of prayer. It was a place of song, of worship, of discussion and debate and teaching. But most of all, it was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of life and death. Always, always remembering that it was a very serious business for sinful people to draw near to a holy God. Reminder that to get near him, to draw near and worship, to go on in relationship, something had to die. Blood had to be shed so that God's people could live with him, know his mercy, know his forgiveness. Sacrifice was at the core of this building. And each sacrifice was a harking back, a reminder of that lamb's blood on the door that had saved God's people on that terrible, amazing night of salvation in Egypt. Well, Jesus is here. He's come to celebrate that event once more, but he does something he's never done before. Part two tonight, clearing the temple courts. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. If we're to grasp Jesus' holy anger here, it's important to note that there was nothing inherently wrong in selling cattle, sheep, doves and, and changing money. Thousands would come to Jerusalem from far and wide, just like Jesus and his disciples, and few, if any, would have brought their own sacrificial animal with them. They needed to buy these animals in the city and they needed someone who would accept their foreign currency. So there's nothing wrong in doing these very things. The problem lay in where they were doing them. The sellers had spied an open space, ideal to set up all of their, 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 sort of their carts, their pens and their tables. They had colonised these outer courts for commerce. They'd set up a marketplace, literally an emporium, that's the term in Greek, in sacred space. And they'd crowded out that very precious architecture of approach that God had laid down to teach his people how to draw near. And Jesus responds with an explosive, sustained, holy anger. I say sustained because having been in this passage so many times, it really struck me this week, this would have taken time to drive all of these sellers out of this big, big court. So this is sustained anger. He does it, he finishes it, and then there's a particularly uh, personal note that he hits as he does it. Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. It's the same phrase he used as a 12-year-old, and here it's heard once more. My father's house. This is personal. This is family. This is God's own anger at what has been allowed to crowd out worship 
relationship with him. This is time and place to remember, to respond to God's salvation, to heed his call to draw near across blood-soaked ground in repentance and in faith and in thanksgiving. This place matters to the Father and to his Son. It's important. So family in Christ, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I opened this evening talking about sacred space, be it landscape or building or a sports ground. But I also described the temple as this little sacred island in the middle of a busy city, sitting there at the heart of this place. Think about the intimate or sacred space in our lives the courts or open spaces that we make in our day or week to spend time with the Lord and his people, the time sacrificed to pray, to have fellowship, to sink deep into God's word. I said earlier that time in in honest, thankful worship was intended to shape the life outside those courts. And these spaces in our day and our week, these private household church times and places should determine the godliness of our lives. It should shape the rest of what we do, be it at home or at work or at uni or school. It's those times when it's it's just you and God or just me and God, when it's a household drawing near. It's a growth group midweek Uh, It's senior high or junior high on Friday nights. It's us as a church gathered on a Sunday. Have you, have we established those courts in our days and weeks, set aside time and place? And if we have, are we guarding those spaces and those times? We're in the middle of a lockdown and it is deeply affected, hasn't it? the way we can meet and what we can and cannot do. It means that I'm preaching to you while you're sitting there at home. Uh, It's deeply affected our Fridays. Uh, All of my guys are sitting on a screen, watching a screen on Friday nights, not here and in each other's homes. It means that our growth groups have got to meet online. All sorts of challenges in this season, isn't there? But I trust this is also the ideal time, the right time to be challenged in how we're shaped in our devotions. How are we approaching God? I've been so encouraged to hear from individuals who are simply not commuting. They're not travelling to work or to uni, so they've got more time with the Lord. People, they're not on a bus to school, so they can sit in God's word longer than they normally would. It's so encouraging to hear about parents who've created kind of weekly church at home. They're learning to lead their own kids in worship. Or those couples or or housemates that are praying together in a way they never have before. How encouraging is it to hear that dinner tables where everyone's actually at home for a change and the word is opened, sometimes in a simple but powerful way after the meal. If that's you that's your home. If that's your experience at the moment, even in this hard series of lockdown, keep going. Stay creative. Be supple in the face of all the challenges that we've got here. 
Be deliberate in engaging with the Lord and each other. Keep those courtyards of the, of the Lord clear and active long after lockdown has ended. But if we're honest, most of us, including myself, have at different times, perhaps today, struggled deeply to keep those times for the Lord and his people clear of what I would call the emporium of everything else. Those things that are so easily allowed to crowd the Lord and his people off into a corner. That point you get where, like, Sundays, in all honesty, have become optional. Where growth group, maybe. Where we're reduced to a verse or two on an app, and then we go back to hours of idle scrolling through our phone. I'm so easily distracted by my phone... <laughs> So I have to keep it well out of arm's reach when I'm reading and praying of a morning. There are some mornings I've got to put it in another room so it does not distract me. I even I make sure that I read a, a, a physical Bible so there's nothing else here that can draw my attention away from my time listening to the Lord. I highly recommend it. Just grab a Bible just as a moment of change instead of perhaps reading it off your phone or a tablet you going in this, this age of kind of distraction. Friends, I want us to look honestly at the courts of the Lord in our lives, the time and space in our day, the week that should belong to him alone. Are there compromises, are there distractions that you could actually deal with this week? You could decide on tonight things that would grieve him, would grieve anyone if we related to them in such a scattergun manner? Is there unholiness that has crept into your walk with the Lord that angers a holy God? What will we do about these things? If so, let's take Jesus' lead here and be ruthless. Let's clear this stuff out in repentance. Let's change the pattern. Make yourself accountable to a brother or sister in Christ. Renovate your devotions. Write down the people that you're going to pray for this week and then let them know you've prayed for them. Do it in another room. Change the chair. Whatever. But this will require zeal. A decisive, holy energy. The very thing that the disciples saw in Jesus that day, it's the thing that reminded them of David's psalm, Psalm 69. It's a song of a guy who loves the Lord but is copying it for his love, who is being persecuted because he, he commits to God's word. He loves the Lord. I've given us here not just the quote that we're given in John 2 but the next line which says so much, doesn't it, about Jesus' ministry where it says, Zeal for your house will consume me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Jesus' love for his Father, his zeal for all that this house means historically, relationally, personally, it's brought him into violent collision with those sellers who have insulted the Lord and now it brings a deeper collision with those who allowed them to do this. I call it the collision that will end up costing Jesus his life. So part three tonight, a temple destroyed and raised. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us 
to prove your authority to do all this. The men who should be guarding this place have seen what Jesus has done. They just simply see it as an affront to their own authority, a challenge to who they are. They demand a miraculous sign, something that will trump their formal authority. And it's a sort of demand that's echoed through the Gospels. We'll see it again in John 6. We see it in Matthew 12. Wherever leaders want, to, want Jesus to prove himself to them on their terms. The devil tries that out in the wilderness when he's tempting Jesus in Luke 4. And we hear it occasionally, don't we, from family or friends or colleagues or other students. Oh, look, I'll believe in him if he does a miracle. As if God was so small that he would simply perform on demand. That he would put on a show to win our acclaim. Friends, that's not our God. That's not who we're meeting with tonight. When Jesus does a sign, it is in deep accord with God's promises, his word, his terms. And what he's just done and said points to a profound change long promised. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple it's spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the, the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It surely ranks as one of Jesus' most outrageous, extraordinary statements. And if we're honest, we would have responded in exactly the same way as those Jewish leaders. He's standing in a temple complex that was going to be eventually one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It was huge, it was beautiful, it was ancient and it was divine in its architecture. No one's pulling this thing down anytime soon. Note the disciples, they didn't understand either. It wasn't until after the resurrection they returned to this statement and they believed him. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? It's only the lens of the dead, risen Christ and that enlightening work of the Holy Spirit that makes clear the scale and significance of what Jesus is saying here. Like we've seen it, haven't we, from the very opening verses of John. If we're going to understand Jesus, we're going to see him clearly, we must know that in him is meshed the epic and the intimate, the huge and the small. He is the creator of all things who steps into his creation. He's the eternal son of God who works in time and place. He is the word become flesh who made his dwelling among us. And that term for dwelling is simply tabernacle. He is the one who's come to tabernacle here. He is full of grace. He is full of truth. And the truth that he lands on here is that the whole of the temple, from the tabernacle in the wilderness to the building in Jerusalem, the carefully laid out courts and rooms, the furniture, the utensils, the priesthood, the ark, the presence of God, and all of those sacrifices 
have all been pointing to him. From the very beginning, this entire structure and what, in, what happens inside it has hummed with potential. And that potential is about to land where it should, on Jesus. You see, he is God in the flesh, so he is the place where we go to meet the living God. As Hebrews 5 to 10 lays out in detail, Jesus is our high priest. He is the one who represents us to God and God to us. And most importantly of all, he as the sinless son of God is the perfect sacrifice for your sins and mine. It's his blood that covers my door, your door, our lives, so that we might never ever be condemned on that final great day of judgment. He dies so that we can live forgiven, set right with God, able to walk in the presence of the holy God tonight and into eternity. In Matthew 27, we're told that at the point where Jesus dies on the cross, he cries out his last. That curtain deep inside the temple, separating the most holy place from the holy of holies, was ripped from top to bottom by God himself. And by that one act, God's saying, the way to live with me is now wide open. It's also his way of declaring that this temple has done its job. It is now obsolete. It's finished as a map of relationship with him. For a whole new way has now been opened up. With Jesus' resurrection, we have the beginning of a new dynamic relationship with God. The temple ceases to be something made of stone and wood and gold and all the rest of it. It now becomes a living thing, a church or a gathering of God's people with Jesus as its cornerstone, as the very one who, who sets its structure and inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God who makes it sacred and present. Paul captures this as he writes to the Gentile Christians in Ephesians 2. He says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In John 2, all of this was yet to come. And that consuming zeal was going to cost him his life soon enough. But take heart tonight as we meet separated in this testing season. Even though we're not in the same building, as far as God's concerned, we are sacred ground. We are a living temple indwelt by his spirit. We are precious to him. Wherever his people meet, that is as significant to him as that most holy place all the way back in Jerusalem. That might mean that's your lounge room tonight. It's this place when we've got people in it. 
It's that grubby cell where persecuted Christians are huddling cold, tired, but persevering in their faith right now. Do you realise that our Zoom rooms are sacred? They are precious to our Father because that's where we're meeting at the moment. So junior high, when you're stuffing around, having a great time with God's word open and having a good laugh, the Father is there with you by his Holy Spirit. That's sacred. Senior high, when you get back into growth groups here in this place or in each other's homes, those rooms are sacred to our heavenly God. Wherever God's people are found, there is sacred ground. He guards his own jealously and he is worthy of our whole lives. Friends, let's treasure our Father's house, this church, and let's keep the courts of the Lord in our day and week clear. The space and time set aside for him and his people. Guard them from the emporium of everything else that constantly seeks to pile on in to that that set-apart time for the Lord. So that when given wholly to the Lord, these are the hours and days as vibrant and full of sound, as rich odours and sights, as that original temple made of stone. Amen. Let's turn to question time. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm looking at a variety of questions here around the theme of anger. Jesus is flipping tables, and so people are asking about that. And um, up the top, I'm going to combine two questions into yep. one here, because one's going straight to the clarity of the point, and the other one's a bit in the subtlety. So is it possible for us to exhibit righteous anger? Uh, what makes anger sinful? That, that's the direct question, but the subtlety is... Um, can you justify an outburst of emotion in ministry? So how can we justify such an outburst of emotion, especially in the context of ministry? Surely flipping tables isn't always appropriate. Yeah, I think... Um, so I think it's really important that, that perhaps I, as one of your ministers, I must be an emotional creature. Otherwise, if I'm cold and clinical, uh, that's a problem, whatever the emotional range... And yes, I think there is definitely a place for a righteous anger. By that we mean it's an anger that's got the, the stamp of God's character on it. Um, I, I think one of the things we've got to realise is that God is a holy God and he gets angry because he loves deeply. I think uh, Nigel hit that mark or someone hit that mark a, couple, a, a few months ago just as we considered this sort of matter. He loves deeply so he gets angry. The key thing to remember is that anger is not a default position in God. It's not like he's always angry and we've got to keep uh, placating him or just yeah, to, to try and make him happy. We all know if we live with an authority figure, be it a parent or a teacher or a leader in any form, who's always angry, that's their default. Uh, I used to work for a guy like that when I was a picture framer years back uh, uh, in between uni courses. It was a nightmare to be in because you never knew uh, where you stood or where that anger would strike. Our God gets angry, but it's slow. It's developed slowly. So in, in Exodus 34, um, this is God's people out in the wilderness. Uh, God's teaching them about who he is. And he says in the midst of all that, um, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger 
abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children, their children, for the sins of the fathers, the third and fourth generation. He's slow to anger. I think that's really important. Uh, the way I've described it, in some ways, you know, like when there's, a, there's sets of waves in an ocean, they usually come in sets of seven, and the earlier waves are smaller, and they are a mark of a much larger wave to come. Where we see God's anger brewing in Scripture, they're like sets of waves. He's slow to be angry. When he strikes, when it comes, he doesn't stay that way. So you could describe yeah. this as a defense of God's anger, or not even a defense, it's the beauty of God's anger. But yeah. let's, let's, let's bring this to the, um, when it's not Jesus, yeah. when, it's, when yeah. it's you know not the Lord, when it's someone in ministry, how do we think about uh, good anger? Is there such a thing? Yeah. Is it all bad? Uh, I've, I can think of times when I've felt a deep righteous anger when I've seen people abused, uh, those who are in positions of power have misused that power. Um, I think when I see um, people wrongly attacked in any sphere, I think I feel a sense of God's anger. The key thing is, what do we do with that anger? If it's, if it's against us, if it's an attack on us, if we let that sit for any length of time, it's likely to become self-righteous and quite toxic. Um, so I think it's really important that righteous anger drives us to pray for justice, uh, for a resolution of it, and if we're in good form, we pray for the person who's done the wrong. We pray for the enemy. So I think there is a place for anger, but we can't sit in it. In terms of flipping tables and all the rest of it, I, yeah, I think we need to be careful there. Where we're being demonstrative in that anger, um, I think we can make some cultural allowance for when Jesus lived and where they were. They were a demonstrative culture, if you want to put it that way. I think where, yeah, but... I think that there would be very limited grounds for physical expression. We've got to remember this is the Son of God inside God's set-aside house. This is his Father's house, and he's physically getting rid of things, like with a whip. But it's, it's rare, isn't it? We don't see Jesus in this mode much. Yeah. And when his followers got a bit feisty and wanted to chop off ears and stuff, he controlled that, didn't he? Yeah. He could finish the lot. He could end the world with a word, and he doesn't. So that, there's a God who is incredibly slow to anger. He gets angry for the right reasons. He doesn't stay that way, but when he strikes, it's devastating. And as we'll see next week, he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Yeah, yeah. Now, last question here is about doubt and signs. Okay, so uh, Tom asks, is it then wrong to ask God for a sign when we're in doubt? How should we best handle doubts that we have? Yeah, um, great question. Really good question because all of us doubt. All of us wrestle deeply with some big decisions that need to be made at times um, and deep longings. I think it's right to go to the Lord with those doubts, to say it to him with that degree of honesty. But I think we need to be very careful in asking for signs about decision-making. Uh, these are where these are wisdom calls. God's given us his wisdom in the word and in that word lived out in the people around us. So if I'm struggling with a decision to make, I'm not likely to ask God, God, I want to see something in the sky. I want to see something uh, in the environment around me. I'm more likely to go to his word and go ask someone who's wise, <laughs> someone who's lived longer than me 
or been along further down a certain path. I think that's a really important thing. The, the danger with signs is we start um, waiting for unusual things to happen before we jump, before we make a decision. And that's a, that's a terrible place to be because I don't, I don't trust myself to be able to read those sort of things on a regular basis. I think God's given us ample uh, wisdom in his word and that word lived out in the people around us. So if it's to do with relationships, if it's to do with who I, who I marry, uh, what sort of work should I do? Um, should I keep studying? Should I pull out, do something else? I think that's the time to go and talk uh, to yeah, uh, someone who's a bit older in the faith, someone who might be able to give you um, some wisdom and recognise too that there are times when we're going to simply have to step out in faith. We won't know for sure, but we go with the Lord into that decision and then we live it out as best we can. I'm happy to come back to that um, in Sermon Extra, actually. Yeah. James will be picking up Sermon Extra in our Facebook group. If you're uh, wanting to join the Christchurch Facebook members group, uh, look us up online and James will take Sermon Extra this week. In particular, if you're a person who's asked about doubt tonight, or if you're viewing this and strongly resonate with that, yeah. uh, it can be uncomfortable to tell people about your doubts, but rest assured that our church is filled with people that struggle with doubt and faith, yeah. uh, but ultimately put our trust in Jesus, and we would love to chat further about that. Mm. Thanks, James.